did not make partner at the firm I worked at for almost 11 years. I lateraled over as a partner at another firm. When I was going through partnership issues, the same thing was happening to each one of my colleagues. It was very clear to us that it was a systemic issue because how is it that, you know, this person practices in D.C. at this firm and this other person practices in New York at this firm and this person practices in L.A. or Chicago and we're all in the exact same position and being told the exact same things. Hi there, it's Sewa and welcome to episode 36 of the She's Off Script podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. Today's guest is Mandy Price, CEO of Canaries. After realizing that many of her diversity and inclusion related challenges in the workplace were shared by many others across the country, she and her co-founders set out to launch a disruptive platform that uses data to bring change. When we originally started, we actually went to a couple of VC firms and we got, is this really a problem? Is this an issue? I don't know if this is a large enough market. And we're like, okay, this is a very big issue. It's like one of the biggest, you know, secrets out there that we haven't ever met an underrepresented professional that didn't feel like they encountered some type of problem or barrier in their career because of their um, identity. As a non-technical founder, Mandy has had to scale a steep learning curve. We actually had a little bit of a horror story ourselves, not with our current development team, but when we were doing our prototype, we had engaged someone and it just was not a good fit. And the prototype, we, we wind up not even able to use it at all. Join me as we go off script with Mandy Price, CEO of Canaries. Before we dive in and before you hit that forward button, please consider subscribing to this podcast and leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. This helps make it easier for others to find us when they're looking for inspiration. Mandy Price, welcome to She's Off Script. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, we're glad you're here. I'm very eager to share your story with our listeners. But for any of our listeners that haven't come across Canaries before, would you mind sharing who you are and what your platform is all about? Sure. So um, I started Canaries based off of my own experiences in the workforce. I practiced as a lawyer for 12 years. And um, during that time, I saw that diversity and inclusion issues were treated vastly different than any other business metric. I felt that most companies, although they had a public profession and maybe even well intentions towards diversity and inclusion, the approach wasn't um, to kind of look at metrics or to use data or to really take a hard look at what structural or systemic things needed to be changed within the organization. And so I wanted to use technology and data to really help build the conversation between employees and employers mm -hmm. so that we could actually solve the issues that employer employees have within their organization from a structural perspective and allow them to, to have the ability to speak up and, and discuss those issues without any fear of negative career ramifications or retaliation. So that's kind of the genesis of Canaries. You know, um, I think 
that hopefully will resonate with a lot of your listeners, but also I think it uh, is an experience that most people have had. You know, I, as I talk with people, uh, their experience with DNI really is built around uh, kind of cultural lunches, is what I like to call them, where we celebrate the months, you know, and mm-hmm. Um, and their speakers and lunches kind of uh, put forth with respect to that, but there's no real employee engagement involved with DNI and and asking those uh, underrepresented populations as far as what do you need to ensure that you can succeed and have true opportunities within um, this organization. You know, part of my experience was uh, I, I led up the ERG in our office for African-American attorneys. And so our ERG was very effective and very, um, you know, we met monthly and, and did activities. But even from that perspective, we weren't really involved with um, kind of talking about the systemic issues that exist within the organization. It was much more support or helping with recruiting or business development. But there was no real internal look on, well, what are the barriers that are preventing, you know, we had 12-year gap before there was African-American partner, uh, law firm I worked at. Mm. And so those are the types of things we're trying to do with Canaries is you use that data and analytics and say, hey, these are the systemic and structural barriers that exist. And these are things that, you know, using the employees and their engagement as part of the process to say, this is how we can solve it. And let's work with our company or our law firms as well to ensure that everyone truly has an opportunity to succeed here. Wow. What an immense gap. I often wonder how that experience is for people within law firms trying to make partner, especially when they see that there is no one above them or ahead of them that they can look forward to. So what was your path to partner like at the law firm? I did not make partner at uh, the firm I worked at for almost 11 years. I, I uh, lateraled over as a partner at another firm. Um, That's often but, how it happens where people feel like <laughs> they have to leave before they get that upgrade. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's so true. Um, but I think, you know, seen kind of the trajectory ahead of you and you've seen those barriers and those hurdles is very uh discouraging for folks you know uh they will when i was there i I don't want to use names but but everyone knew the person was the last person to pick partner and even to have them talk about their own struggles right where a lot of times these people were put up more than once or they were promised partnership and then told, you know, well, you have to wait for time and things like that. And so I think um, it's, the system needs to be better. And to me, the fact that stories, when I talk to people, I'll just think of my own colleagues as far as law school classmates. Um, When I was going through my whole kind of partnership uh, issues, the same thing was happening to each one of my colleagues mm. uh, graduated law school from me. And so it was very clear to us that it was a systemic issue because how is it that, you know, this person practices in DC at this firm and this other person practices in New York at this firm and this person practices in LA or Chicago and we're all in the exact same position and being told the exact same things. And so- And just so uh, we're clear, Mandy, you went to Harvard Law. Yes, that's correct. And you were also 
instrumental in some key cases with large firms. So you were putting in the work, and I assume so were your colleagues across the country, yet you're also seeing parallel experiences. That's right. And I think that was part of the thing that really made the light bulb go off for me mm. to kind of talk about canaries and making sure that companies and law firms are addressing stru uh, structural and systemic issues. Because at that point, I'm like, this isn't a problem with just my law firm. This is, you know, an overarching problem mm. that is, is evident because there's no way that each of us could have these individual issues and um, be told the exact same things. <laughs> right. And if it was a performance issue, um, I felt that, well, why is it that each of us were at the firms for 10, 11 or whatever years? Mm -hmm. So it just, it, there was something else, you know, there. And I felt like, you know, we need to be more active in changing the systems and the structures mm -hmm. as opposed to teaching our children or mentoring younger associates how to navigate the system. And I felt like so much of the work we were doing in the in employee resource group, which is valuable, and the work that, you know, when we would mentor even uh, law students was kind of like, well, this is how you navigate the political structure of a law mm. firm. And this is how you can, you know, ensure that you're able to succeed there. But I felt like these successes were so one-off, right? So it was like, okay, we're able to get, you know, this one person to, to be partner. But what we should really be looking at was if we know that there's something wrong with the system and the structure of the way um, it, it works currently as far as how work is, you know, levied out and, and how people are sponsored or mentored, why is our goal not to change the structure of the system mm -hmm. themselves? Mm -hmm. And so that's really the goal of Canaries is to talk about how can we create a more equitable workforce, not just teaching people survival skills or right. best method of how to navigate or climb corporate America for a law firm, but what can we do to ensure the entire system is more equitable? So I'm curious, did you always want to be a lawyer? And if so, what about starting your own business was so compelling that it pulled you off of that trajectory? So, you know, I had always, when I say always, I, I guess since high school, mm -hmm. wanted to um, you know, earlier, like most people, you see doctors or you see different things. And so you, you know, you're not sure you're still trying to find out who you are as a person, mm -hmm. but early on, uh, definitely within my first few years of college, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I was really drawn towards advocacy. Um, my parents, um, had always instilled within me a sense of community and social justice and things of that nature. So I've always been very involved in advocacy work. And so I was drawn to law because I felt that that was the way to do advocacy. When I think of, you know, most lawyers really are involved with um, advocacy, social justice, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And so I saw that as the way to accomplish that. But over time, I realized that that was not the only way you could advocate for social change. Mm -hmm. and so as I was in my career and was able to see some of the problems that were evident within corporate America, I, I was compelled. I felt like I could, I could, I, 
I had to act. I couldn't just sit there and keep seeing, seeing these issues over and over again. And so I was drawn to using technology as a way to, to have advocacy, uh, to do the social change that I've always wanted to do. It's interesting because I was reading a 2018 report that found that the number of companies owned by Black women grew by like a staggering 164% over the year before. And in my experience, part of that exodus is spurred by experiences like what you mentioned, where some women feel like they can't bring their whole selves to the workplace, or they just feel like they just don't fit in. So Mandy, how do you see a platform like Canaries helping companies deal with the attrition within this demographic? Yeah, so that's really what our platform is set up to do. It's, it's set up to allow people to speak their truth, speak their experiences at work. I know a lot of times people are reluctant to kind of talk about the true issues they're facing in the workforce because they want to keep their job. So we allow people to bring and uh, to provide this feedback in anonymous fashion. And then we aggregate and anonymize that data on the back end and provide it to the company so that they know the true issues that exist within their workforce and can work to change them. So we ask a lot of questions in the form of surveys. We also have natural language processing of reviews that we do, but we coalesce all that data so that then we could say, hey, you know, a lot of, for example, African-American women are complaining saying that they feel uncomfortable wearing their hair natural at work. or So we could present that to them in a fashion, and that's what we do in, in our reports, so that your voice is heard in, in, to, your, to your employer. So what has been the reception of your platform from companies who are currently in beta testing with you? Um, very positive. Um, you know, the companies that have signed on, obviously, are ones that uh, are into transparency, since that's one of our goals, but also into uh, cultivating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace. Mm -hmm. So we're really excited about our public launch. I think that'll give us a more fulsome, you know, set of kind of the rest of <laughs> how receptive companies are because right now people have naturally selected you know as far as participation and so because of that we have skewed um positivity i we think it will we're hopeful that it will continue to be positive but the companies that have bought on are ones that are are very um interested and committed to creating an equitable inclusive workforce Okay, so you've said that you hope to see diversity, equity, and inclusion data tracked and treated, you know, more like other business metrics. What would you say to critics who believe that you can't force companies to make DNI a priority, and as a result, you probably won't be able to move the, the needle in any significant way? I would say that um, either you're going to keep up with the times, or you're going to be left behind. Mm. And uh, I think that. It's very evident that this is an issue that is important to, um, I, I, I don't want to say younger, but the, I, when you look at all the reports and the statistics, the zennials and the millennials care about diversity, equity, and inclusion like no other generation. Mm. And um, I believe by 2030, millennials are going to be like 70% of the So if you are not in line with your workforce and what they want as far as a work environment, you know, you're going to be the next blockbuster. And, <laughs> you know, we can go on and on about folks that weren't keeping up with the trends and what was on the horizon. So I, I, I very much believe that the company 
companies that are successful in this are going to be able to attract, retain the best talent. And the companies that aren't are going to lose their innovation. They're going to not be able to have the workforce that they need to be competitive in the market. So it's not so much about making them. It's about who's going to be smart enough to realize that this is a true business advantage. Because right now, most companies do not treat DNI seriously whatsoever. They, mm. It's a talking point. It's a, oh, that's a nice to do. But this truly is something that cultivates uh, innovation, collaboration, employee engagement, and better financial returns. And so if they're not going to understand that this truly is a business imperative, their business is just is, will suffer. That's a compelling case. Just bringing up Blockbuster alone. No one wants to be the next <laughs> Blockbuster, right? So <laughs> at least hopefully ears perk up and they see that it's worth looking into. So for our listeners that are aspiring technical founders, I want to pivot a little bit and get into some more tactical tools that they can use to start their journey. Um, so for yourself, you are a non-technical founder at a tech company. What were your biggest challenges with launching your platform? Um, obviously having to get up to speed on everything that I needed to know from a technical perspective. And with that is also knowing who we needed to engage on our team, right? Like we know developers and engineers, but, but what else do we need? And, you know, learning about UI and UX and, and, uh, all the kind of, you know, backend versus frontend developer, you know, I had, there was this deep learning curve where we had to ensure we had the right folks on our team to make sure our platform is going to work from a, from a technical functionality perspective. But, you know, being a lawyer, doing research and uh, understanding what experts and expertise I need to be brought in is something that I was very familiar and comfortable with. And I think allowed me to know that I didn't know it all and that I needed to get the right team assembled. And so that's, that's what we did is make sure that we were able to assemble a team that was able to bring their collective backgrounds and expertise to ensure we had a product that was, that was functional. So speaking about finding the right team members and finding developers, where did you even find developers to begin with? Because I've heard horror stories of people, you know, going overseas to find affordable developers and the code audit comes up and things are just a hot mess. And as non-technical people, they don't even know how to audit the code themselves. So where did you start with that? Yeah, sure. So we actually um, had a little bit of a horror story ourselves. Oh no! <laughs> with our uh, not with our current development team, but when we were doing our prototype, we had engaged um, someone, and it just was not a good fit. And the prototype, we we wind up not even be able to use it at all. And so with that, we uh, said, well, let's go to. Um, and, and do some extensive research. So we did a lot of research on, okay, who are well-known developers, what developers have won awards, um, you know, uh, and reached out to them and did an extensive RFP process. And so from that process, we were looking at not only their expertise and background and what kind of projects have they worked on before, but then also what was the fit? Because we knew we'd be working with these people. So do we get along with them? Do they believe and understand our mission and the purpose of what we're trying to accomplish so that they could be forward thinking as well? Because sometimes if you don't know a subject matter, you don't even know what questions to ask. So we didn't want, which would happen with our prototype, is someone to just build exactly what we said 
and not say, well, what about this? Or if this is actually your goal, you should also be thinking about this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And so we made sure that um, those were questions that we asked and we felt that connection with our development team. So um, we chose a developer called We Will, and they have been phenomenal. And we kind of felt those those uh, good feelings from the beginning um, as far as alignment with mission and purpose and tech for good is one of their uh, key components that they look for when they're, they're working with clients as well. They won several Webby Awards and Awe Awards and CSN Awards. And so we felt very confident in their technical capabilities. But more than that, it was that they were in line with mission and purpose with us, which we felt was key. Going back to your earlier kind of issue with your first development team and building your team, how much of your decision to go with your first developer choice was based on cost? A large part of it was based on cost. Yeah, they said they can do it for this amount. We also had a recommendation for them, so it wasn't completely just cost, but it was very cost cost heavy. And then we saw that... Um, uh, my husband likes to say this all the time. The cheat man pays twice. Yep. Um, <laughs> that if you go just strictly on cost, but then you have a product that um, is not working or you can't use it or you can't show it to raise funding or, you know, it it's, defeats the purpose. I also saw that in 2018, female founders raised 2.2% of venture dollars out there. And of that, I mean, something like 0.0006% were black female founders. Now, given those numbers, what was your mindset around raising capital? Because cost is something that's always at the forefront of your mind when you're building something of this magnitude. Um, I would say that, you know, we knew that it was going to be expensive mm-hmm. to raise um, the funding that we needed for the platform. But I, we also knew that the same kind of structural barriers that we're trying to break down within corporate America were the same ones we were going to have to kind of scale uh, to, to bring this company to life was a challenge that we were willing to take on. We knew that was ahead of us. We knew that the average female founder, African-American female founder only raises $42,000. Right. We knew that challenge was there. So we weren't going to let it deter us. We're happy to say that, you know, we've raised 700000 so far for our platform. Congratulations. And, well, thank you. So you're uh, still in the throes of raising capital. So yes. you've done your pre-seed funding and you're still working on another round. Could you share how you went about raising your initial round of funding? Yeah, sure. So we started out by um, kind of going to known angels that we knew. Um, from being working for several years. So we had um, colleagues of ours that we knew that were angel investors. We went to them and kind of talked with them or they referred us to other angels. And we um, got a lot of skepticism. You know, what we originally went to were actually people of color because we're like, oh, they'll understand the issues that we're trying to solve for. And know, um, you know, that these are really very real issues because actually I need to step back a little bit. When we originally started, we actually went to a couple of VC firms and we got, is this really a problem? Is this an issue? I don't know if this is a large enough market. And we're like, okay, this is a very big issue. Um, 
me and my co-founders feel like it's like one of the biggest known, you know, secrets out there um, that we haven't ever met an underrepresented professional that didn't feel like they encountered some type of problem or barrier in their career because of their um, identity, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, we felt that at that point, once we got those kind of initial questions, is kind of why we pivoted to going to people of color, under uh, their underrepresented professionals, because they would know firsthand that this was a real legitimate market. And this is an issue that exists. Um, but what we got from that group was a much more, I feel like this problem is so big and the companies are so resistant to change mm. that I don't know how we can overcome it. And so um, it was a completely kind of different perspective. And so that was interesting because how do we convince people that the current status quo is changeable? That we don't have to think that this is just the world we live in and mm-hmm. we, the way we just have to continue to teach our children these survival skills, but that we can actually dismantle the system and make it different. And That's so often the plight of disruptors is people yeah. cannot wrap their minds around the fact that there's a possible solution and that you are the person leading the charge. Yeah, yep, yep, exactly. And so the first few angels that we talked to, um, that was kind of their mindset was, I just, I believe in y'all's mission. I want to support. I know it's a known problem, but basically I've been in corporate environment for too long to, to envision it being any different. Mm. And um, So then we really sought folks that understood kind of same with our development team, our mission and our purpose of what we were trying to do uh, as far as investors. And we were able to find those folks. We felt that if someone didn't understand the vision and the mission of what we were trying to do, we didn't want them to be an investor Mm -hmm. um, because we didn't want them to constantly be uh, second guessing decisions we were making or not understanding that it's going to take time, right? It's going to take time to get the um, traction that we need for, uh, to make the improvements that, that we're seeking. So we've, we've been very fortunate to be able to have been aligned with investors that really understand the social impact nature of what we're doing mm-hmm. and understand the importance of it in our society. And uh, we're very, very grateful for not only their investment, but their guidance. Um, we have a lot of investors that have a lot of expertise in, in um, not only this subject matter, but other subject matters that are very pertinent to our business. So we, we've been very fortunate. I was listening to someone else talking about their struggle with raising and they felt like they went to meeting after meeting where people looked at them sideways, had no clue what they were talking about. But at the end of the day, it seemed like within a very short span of time, things came together. Once you got that first investor in, that was a signal to other investors that, okay, it's okay to jump in because someone else has vetted you and is comfortable with the level of risk associated with your, with your venture. So good to see that you guys were able to overcome that. So moving forward now, are you changing your approach at all when it comes to approaching new investors? 
Um, we, we're not changing our approach. We are still raising um, funding to prepare for our public launch. You know, as you noted earlier, we're in private beta right now, but we'll be launching our platform this summer. Mm-hmm. And so we're continuing to um, uh, seek investment dollars for that, for that public launch with some of the digital marketing and social media and some of the other things we still need to, to do. But um, I think overall, our, our overall fundraising approach is different in the sense of after we launch, we plan to do an actual priced equity round. So for our listeners that are not familiar with that, could you share what, what is a priced equity round? Yeah, sure. So right now we've raised all of our funding under a pre-seed convertible note um, where, you know, a convertible note is, is part equity, part debt. And so uh, they've all received those promissory notes and, and fundraise under a note purchase agreement. Once we launch, we're going to do a price equity round, which actually gives your company a valuation. And they say, this is how many, how, how much your equity is worth per share. And then you negotiate exactly, um, you know, what percentage or, or of equity you're going to be uh, giving the investor in exchange for the, for the monetary dollars that they've invested in the company. So that would be our seed round and uh, it would be a price equity round. So given that you worked in the mergers and acquisitions field as an attorney, this is second nature for you, right? Um, part of it is, um, you know, private equity is what, is what I represent private equity firms. And it's a little bit different than venture capital because venture capital comes in at a much earlier stage in the way the transactional documents are, are different as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's similar enough where I know enough of the verbiage and I know enough about the process. So same thing with mergers and acquisitions, although it's more established companies. And so they're, they're working with PE firms. It's still the same. You have a purchase agreement, you have disclosure reps, you have, you know, um, uh, kind of this whole due diligence process. And so all of those things I'm very familiar with. So now that you're bringing investors on board, I think it turns on the pressure a little bit. So as it stands today, what is Canary's revenue models and how do you plan on making healthy returns for those investors? Yeah, sure. So we're a B2B model. We have annual subscriptions that we uh, provide to the companies. So any user that uses our platform, they're able to go on and get information about the companies for free to understand kind of what is their diversity, equity, inclusion procedures and policies, what have been the experience of other underrepresented professionals there. They're able to all obtain that for free. But for businesses um, to receive the data and the analytics and the insights that we provide, you have to have an annual subscription. For companies that are receiving an onslaught of comments and feedback, I would imagine that would be enough to entice them to get that yearly subscription. We hope so. And just the desire to make their workforce better. You know, um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that we do on our platform is um, we know that there's so little trust in data uh, nowadays or kind of what you read on the internet. So we have a verification process that we put in place to ensure that the folks taking our surveys and our uh, leaving reviews for the companies have previously worked there, either currently or previously worked there, so people can rely on our data and the information that they're seeing on our platform. So if you're a company that is committed to creating an equitable and inclusive workplace, we would hope that you would want to partner with us 
so that we can um, collaborate and work together on creating, um, you know, that, that equitable workforce. And I think that collaboration is going to be key. So going back to our, our aspiring tech founders, what is some advice that you would give for founders who don't live in traditionally tech-heavy cities like San Francisco as they come up in this in this startup space? We're in Dallas. And so it's not one of the traditional uh, hubs that people think of when they think of startups or, or cities, you know of innovation, although we're working to change that. And there's a very bright, vibrant startup community here in Dallas. Um, but I think it's important to remember that there are is talent everywhere. You know, that's one of the mantras that we tell our companies that are, we're working with, that if your workforce is primarily all men or pr primarily all of one demographic, there's a problem with your structures and your systems because talent resides everywhere every gender, every um, race, every sexuality, you know, their talent doesn't discriminate. So I think it's important to look for meetups or other events that you can connect with like-minded individuals that are also looking to start a company. And I think you'd be surprised at the level of talent, technical, in every single city. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would tell people not to be discouraged that uh, you, you are able to find the folks with the background and the expertise that you need in whatever city that you're looking at. Okay, I think that's something that people need to hear over and over again, especially if they hear about all the things happening in Silicon Valley and they don't think that that's possible where they live. I think seeing a story like the coming up of your company gives people hope, absolutely. So more on the personal side of things, both you and your husband have gone in all in on this business full time. So as parents of two little ones, what boxes did you have to check off for yourselves in order to get comfortable with taking that leap? Um, you know, it, it was a process. I will say that, you know, I definitely was, um, you know, more all in initially than my husband. We're both completely all in now. But it is scary, right, to know that you have a family and children and say, okay, we're going to commit ourselves to this and how are we going to survive from a financial perspective? So, you know, we did have some money saved up that we've relied on, but we've had to do a lot of cutting back. You know, a lot of the things that we traditionally did, we were not able to do anymore. But I think um, it's been helpful to have us both be so committed to the project because we uh, there's not a level of animosity or a feeling of we're doing you know we're in this position um, because you decided to do this we're both fully committed to the work mm -hmm. and um, want to ensure that the company is able to be successful um, not just for our family but for all families, right, to, to ensure that we're able to create this equitable, inclusive workforce for our children and to ensure that kind of the ideals of America are, are truly realized is what we think, you know, that when people think about what the promises and vision of, of our country was that anyone can aspire to any level, no matter who they are, what their background is. Mm -hmm. And I feel that within corporate America, there's still these 
these hurdles and barriers is so we're working to ensure that that promise is fulfilled that no matter who you love or how you love no matter your race your religion that you can still be successful based off your talent alone so it definitely helps to be united in your belief that the company is is working on a worthwhile cause um, mm-hmm. So we've also had other guests on the show that have started businesses with spouses or loved ones and actually polled our podcast community about it. And the results came back 75-25 split in favor of starting a business with a loved one. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. No, so it is. I was, I was yeah. pleasantly surprised by that. But how do you do it? How do you separate startup life from home life when you're working with your spouse? Um, It was very challenging in the beginning. And to be honest, we still have some hiccups. You know, there's times where we're like, okay, we need to recalibrate and figure out how, you know, uh, certain issues are dealt with. Um, But what we try to do is um, ensure when we're at work, we're talking about work things, we're at home, we're talking about those things. But it's difficult, it bleeds over, you know, because there's a lot of times where we have to address things, right? We, we get late on emails and it's like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna deal with this? But um, I think that being able to have a team around us has really helped. Um, you know, Canaries is now a team of 10. So it makes it and contributes to feeling like any other work environment, right? So um, when you have colleagues and and other team members, you're not going to just go into talking about a family issue (laughs) in front of of your colleagues. So um, I think that, again, overall, I I feel that it's very positive because, um, you know, sometimes, you know, people always go to their spouse or significant other to talk about issues they've had where I'm kind of already ahead of that, where I've already seen firsthand if he's had frustration with the vendor or whoever. And so uh, I feel like it's made us closer because we truly know the different issues that one may be dealing with in the workplace. See, that, that, that's definitely motivation for people thinking about doing it in the future. It is possible to do it successfully. Um, so, Mandy, for anyone looking to jump off the corporate ladder into the startup world, would you have, you know, a parting piece of advice for them? I would say um, I do think that you have to be prepared for challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's not nearly as scary as you think. Um, uh, you know, I, I've met a lot of women that say, I want to start my own business. I'm just worried, right? A lot of times it's single moms and they say, I don't have a husband to, um, you know, I can depend on their income. And so how do I do this without jeopardizing my, my children's, you know, uh, success in the stability. And I think it is important to have a set of funding or savings set aside so that you can make that leap. I don't want people to think that it's, you know, all roses and butterflies and it's super easy, but I think you have to realize that, um, I just feel like we are, made for these challenges. I think if you're an entrepreneur and this is a desire that you have, um, that you won't be happy until you pursue it. And even though I've had 
lots of challenges. We've had lots of challenges getting canaries off the ground. I would not change it one day. You know, um, I felt that the successes that we've had, but just the ability to pursue something that I feel like is not my heart's desire, but my purpose here on earth, I feel like would never be fulfilled if I had stayed uh, working at a law firm. Wow. On the flip side of that, that earlier statistic we mentioned about just the vast growth of the number of women of color in the startup space, what advice would you have for women that are just thinking about leaving corporate America, not because they have a desire to start a business, just because, but because they're disillusioned with DNI issues that they have encountered? What advice would you have for them about trying to survive and thrive within the corporate space? I would say, I don't think you should start a business if you don't have a desire to start a business because it's too difficult. Um, There are so many days where you get the wind knocked out of you. And if you're not, uh, you know, kind of had this desire to be an entrepreneur to to start your business, I don't think that you'll survive. Mm. But I think if you are just tired of um, the current landscape of corporate America, that you should look and, and seek out other companies, that there are companies that are very in tuned with creating a different type of workforce and are innovators in this front. So uh, I think that you should look at maybe non-traditional companies. I think that, you know, the safety net is to think of really large companies and corporations that everyone knows, but there are smaller mid-sized companies that you can work at um, and other startups, right? There's startups that have been around for several years that you could work at that had a more inclusive uh, workforce that I think that they would be happier at. No, I think that's really good advice as opposed to I'm I'm just leaving entirely. Look for other pockets where you can still get that security, but then also feel like you could bring your whole self. Yes, exactly. So at this point, you probably piqued the interest of a lot of our listeners. Mandy, where can they connect with you after they hear this interview? Um, so I, um, have a couple of social media channels where people can connect with me, um, on my LinkedIn, on my Facebook. Um, and then I would also encourage folks to, uh, connect with us at Canaries where we launch this summer. And so, um, they could also go to any of our social media channels as well, which are all listed on our website on canaries.com. Great. And then we'll link all of those in the show notes so people can um, jump on there and see what you guys are working on. But Mandy, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. I'm so glad you made it to the end of today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please go on iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and write us a review. As always, don't forget to share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, anyone who cares to listen. We'll talk to you next time.